And if you've been around Gospel Hope at all, you know that this is kind of like not a traditional series for us. What we usually like to do is take a passage of scripture and just kind of plow through that and let the Lord kind of set the agenda by letting, putting the word in the driver's seat. Um, but that is the regular diet and what we think is probably the most healthy for the life of church over the t- course of time. But every now and again, there are some topics that we believe that it's just a, a good idea to take a look at in kind of a topical format. And this is one of those. So we're really walking through a series on what they call systematic theology. Systematic just means organized. So we're looking at what the Bible says about the Bible in a organized way, and we're looking throughout the Bible for that. We're using some history in the midst of that. We're looking at archaeology. We're looking at all kinds of things that hopefully will give you a greater confidence that the Word of God that you hold in your hands is indeed the Word of God. So the first week in the series, we took a look at the idea of inspiration. That is, God breathed out His Word, or God spoke His Word to us. Last week, we looked at the idea of canonicity. That is how we got to the 66 books of the Old and New Testament and why we consider those the Bible today. And today, we're going to dive into the idea of preservation. That is, how did we get from the original manuscripts that Paul and James and Isaiah and Moses wrote down to the Bible that you hold in your lap this morning. How many of you have a Bible with you or a device that has the Bible on it? Hold it out, hold it up, hold it up in the air. Okay, very good. So we're going to answer the question, hopefully with some degree of clarity, how we got from those Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts to what you hold in your hand today. Probably most of you holding the English Bible today. All right, so you with me? You see where we're going? All right, let's pray. It will feel a little bit more like a seminary classroom than it will a sermon. And then at the end, I'll get a little preachy. Okay, so hang on. When Jalen kind of limps up here, you know that I'm going to get a little bit more preachy. So that's your cue. All right, you ready? All right, let's pray and ask for God's help this morning. Lord, we do need you. And we ask that you would help us to have a greater confidence in the word of God. Lord, would you teach us and instruct us? And open our eyes to see the beauty and the wonder of the scripture in the English language today. Lord, we're so thankful that you are a God who speaks. Lord, you revealed yourself to us through your word. And what a joy it is to be able to open up the revelation of God and see the face of Jesus Christ in it. So I pray today you would aim our brains You would help us to think carefully, and above all, your spirit would be acting in giving us confidence in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. While serving as Secretary of State a few years ago, Hillary Clinton met with a Russian foreign minister named Sergei Lavrov. And this, this meeting was kind of historic in one sense, and the intent was kind of to renew or reset relationships between Russia and the United States. And the idea was just kind of a gesture of goodwill. The United States presented the ambassador with a button. And on the button, it was meant to say reset, just to say, hey, let's start over. Let's kind of put the past behind us and let's move forward with trade and all of these things where we could have good relationships. Unfortunately, whoever was in charge of making the button didn't check carefully what the translation of reset was. So they handed the button. It was supposed to say reset. It actually said overcharge. So uh, this, this did not, this has not set a wonderful precedent for relationships between the United States and Russia. Fortunately, Secretary Clinton and the minister had a good laugh on it. But the point of the matter is, is that sometimes... Sometimes the original intent of the author gets lost, right? We say the phrase, lost in what? Translation. Sometimes that does happen, and unfortunately it happened in that kind of comical little story of what happened in relationships between two countries. But I, it raised the question in my mind, do we, do we, can we really be confident that the English translation 
that you are reading from this morning is consistent with what was originally written. Can you be confident that the word of God that you hold in your hands is the word of God that the Lord wanted you to have? Or to ask the question a different way, has God's words been preserved for us? Has it been preserved for us? I think to this answer to the question is yes. And while there are no explicit scriptures that speak directly to this matter, the testimony of history and the implications of the Bible give us many reasons for confidence in the word of God. It is, these, it is a few of these reasons that I'd like to just talk about this morning and tell you several reasons to trust your Bible. Okay, I want to give you several reasons to trust your Bible this morning. Pretty straightforward. Some of these are going to be from the Bible. Some of these are going to be from history. You ready with me? Reasons to trust your Bible. And if you're taking notes, and there's special rewards for those who take notes in heaven. Number one is this. The method of preservation. When God originally gave his word to man, he did it through the important messengers in such a way that what they received, what they wrote down, could literally be considered the word of God. Okay, we read this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Here's what it says. Follow along with me. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of, what's it say? Say it again. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What this means simply is this. When David wrote a psalm, or when Isaiah wrote his prophecy, or when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, the Bible tells us here that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they wrote the word of God. But nowhere does the scripture tell us that this Holy Spirit supervision applies to anything but the original writings. Okay? So, the Bible says that when Paul wrote, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? The Bible says that when Isaiah wrote, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that when Moses wrote, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. But the Bible does not say that the copies of those things were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It never says that. Only the original writings. This has led theologians to universally agree that divine inspiration applies only to the autographa. Okay? The autographa is just a fancy way of saying the original manuscripts. With me on that? So inspiration, God carrying along by the Holy Spirit, those who wrote down, applies only to the originals. Here's the challenge. We don't have any originals. There is no original manuscripts that exist. We don't have a single scrap of historical evidence written by Paul. Not a thing. We don't have a single scrap of anything written by Moses. Not a single one. So you might hear that and say, "Uh uh-oh. Pastor Ryan, does that mean we've somehow lost the word of God? I don't think so. Because unsurprisingly, God is in his infinite wisdom chose to preserve his word in an extremely wise and incorruptible way. In the days before the printing press, if you wanted to circulate a document, the only way that you could do it was to make a hand copy. That's why the printing press was so amazing. Because prior to that time, the only way to get a copy of something else was for somebody to sit down and meticulously write out every word. Can you imagine writing out the entire Bible by hand? That would be a massive, massive undertaking. But for centuries, that's exactly what people did to get copies of the Bible. In fact, they they were extremely meticulous in doing so too. There's some records, some historical records of what the scribes who wrote down the Bible and copied it did. Here's some of the things that they went through. In order to copy the Bible, they had to use a special formula of black ink. They had to say each word out loud when they wrote it. They had to wash not only their pen, but their entire bodies every time they wrote the word Jehovah. 
They had to have their copy reviewed within 30 days. So you couldn't linger on this project for a long time. Like from start to finish. It had to be 30 days long. They had to start completely over. Get this. If there were found more than three errors on a page. Yipe. Start all over. Or if their word count was off. They had to store their copy of scripture in a sacred place. So here's what the Lord did. Instead of creating some single magical manuscript where the word of God was stored, God chose to make a whole bunch of copies of those original manuscripts. And I believe God preserved his word in all of those manuscripts. You say, well, what does that mean? I'm not exactly sure. I think the best way to illustrate this is simply with a little object lesson. So did you get your scribal materials when you came in this morning? Raise your hand if you got your scribal materials out. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pretend that we are a bunch of scribes, all right? So get your pencils and your papers ready, and I'm going to read something out loud, and you're going to write it down. Very simple, right? Everybody with me so far? So get your pencils and your papers in hand. Ready? Are you ready? Wow, that was overwhelming. I think one person was like, I guess I might be ready. Everybody else is like, I'm not doing this. This is dumb. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah, you would never make it as Old Testament scribes. Okay, very good. Here we go. Writing this down word for word, perfect for posterity. As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Each wife had seven sacks. Each sack had seven cats. Each cat, uh huh, uh-huh, had seven kits. Kits, cats, sacks, and wives. How many were going to St. Ives? <laughs> Wrong. The answer is one. Yeah, you can unpack it later. Okay. All right. How many of you think you got it perfect? Okay, so there's like three confident people in here. I did. Got them all. Right, yeah. How many of you think in your particular copy, you made maybe a couple errors? Yep. Maybe spelling, maybe missed a word, something like that, right? But, but you think you basically got the gist of it. So let's assume, let's just assume that not a single person got it perfect. Let's just assume that, right? Let me ask you a question. Have we lost the original? No. Because here's what we would do. We would take all of those copies, right? We'd put them together. We'd lay them up here on the stage. And if we compared them all, what would we be able to do with almost absolute certainty? We'd be able to figure out the original, right? We'd be able to figure out what I actually said by comparing all of those manuscripts. Isn't God smart? That's exactly how God chose to preserve his word in the Bible. He didn't make some sort of magical copy. Like if you lost the magical copy, all of a sudden the word of God is gone. Instead, he chose to preserve his word in a whole bunch of different manuscripts. So that when you bring those manuscripts together and you compare them, you can be almost 100% certain that what you have in your hands is exactly, is exactly the word of God that the Lord originally spoke. God's preservation in his word in this way makes it extremely difficult to corrupt and it makes it so that no one person can say, I have the word of God and all of these other copies are flawed. God in his wisdom said, I will choose to preserve my word for my people in such a way that they actually have it and in such a way that it's incorruptible in one sense. Or to put it this way, the captain of human history never falls asleep at the wheel. When the Lord was preserving his word, he wasn't like going to drop the ball like we talked about last week on the one yard line. 
The Lord preserved his word. He had his hand in the process to make it so that the word of God that we hold in our hands, we can have a high degree of certainty, if not absolute certainty, that the Bible that you hold in your hands is exactly the Bible that he wanted you to have. Number two. Why else can we have confidence in the word of God? Number two, the reliability of the manuscripts. There are ancient manuscripts on all kinds of different things in the world. Like all ancient documents we have, there are some sort of ancient handwritten documents that stand behind them. Homer, you know, any work of Greek philosophy or anything like that. There are manuscripts behind those. But the the evidence for the Bible is in a league of its own. The way historians study and authenticate ancient pre-printing press documents is to collect and compare all the available manuscripts. And the manuscript evidence to support the Bible you hold in your hands, uh, this is not an overstatement, this is just truth. It's literally staggering. It really is. And I want to give you three kind of things about these manuscripts that should just kind of blow your mind. Number one, the reason or the first thing about the reliability of the manuscripts is the sheer number of manuscripts that are in existence for the New Testament. The New Testament alone, just the New Testament, I'm not even talking about the Old Testament, but the New Testament alone has 6,000 Greek manuscripts. 6,000 Greek manuscripts which have at least a portion of the 27 books of the New Testament in them. This is without even counting the 10,000 Latin manuscripts and the almost 10,000 manuscripts in various other ancient languages. This becomes even more mind-blowing when you compare the Bible to other ancient documents. So I have a little chart up here on the screen, so if you will go. So think about this this way. So there's a, there's a document ca- called Tacitus's History and Annals. There's two manuscripts that exist, and nobody doubts that that's a real, authentic document from history. Or consider Caesar, Caesar's Gaelic Wars. You know how many document or documents? Ten. Or uh, Thucydides, I had to look up how to pronounce that one, his document, the Peloponnesian War. Eight, Herodotus's history, eight. And the New Testament, 5,800. There are just thousands upon thousands of manuscripts that help us to authenticate the reading of the New Testament. But that's not the only thing. Not only are the number of manuscripts staggering, it's also the age of the manuscripts that is staggering. chart again, a couple more columns on here, if you look up here. So here we have all these documents. So take, for instance, Tacitus's History and Annals. There's two manuscripts, and they're actually 800 years after it was written. So it was written about 100 AD. Those manuscripts date from about 900 AD. And you just go down the list. Thucydides' Peloponnesian War, eight manuscripts. 1,300 years after he wrote is the age of those manuscripts, but not the New Testament. When you look at the evidence of the New Testament, you have not only 5,800 Greek manuscripts, but they're only 35 to 100 years. The oldest of those are only 35 to 100 years after the New Testament was written. What does that mean? It just means that there's not a lot of opportunity for corruption to happen. The shorter the time that happens, the shorter the time that happens, the less chance that that original reading will be corrupted. And so we can have great confidence in the word of God. Uh, now, look at this. How many of you uh, played the little game telephone as a kid? You know what I'm talking about? So if we started right over here with, with Carrie and Rod, and we said, Carrie, pass a message on to Rod. And she did, and then Rod passed it on to Travis, and Travis passed it on to Jalen. And we said, okay, stop right there. It's likely what? Is Jalen pretty close to Carrie's message? Yes. But if you keep going down that line, the whole auditorium, and we get all the way over here to Sam and Stephanie, and they're dishonest folks. They just are, you know, right? No. Um, and we get over here to Sam and Stephanie. What is the chance of corruption? Is it much more likely or less likely? More. So when you have these manuscripts that are hundreds, even thousands of years later, the chance of corruption gets higher and higher. But if you have manuscripts very close to the original, which in antiquity, this is staggeringly close. 
you have much more confidence that the word of God is the word of God that spoke to you. Sorry, I'm taking you to history class a little bit here, but this is important for us to understand so that we have great confidence that the Bible in our hands is actually the word of God that God intended to us. To put it this way, the Bible is by far, by far, the most strongly attested ancient document in human history. And any historian, secular or Christian, would agree with that statement because the, the evidence is just incontrovertible. The Bible that you have in your hands, there is more evidence for that book than for virtually any other human uh, event in, in the history of humanity. With me on that? Okay, third thing is this, the quality of the manuscripts. Okay, this one I really need you to think with me carefully with a little bit, but I want you to think about this idea. Among the nearly 6,000 New Testament manuscripts, there are a number of variants, okay? Now, variant is simply, uh, it's a term that means where one manuscripts differ from another. And in handwritten copies, you would, you would expect that to happen, right? Just as with our little St. Ives things, there would be a bunch of variants among us because we're hand copy. It's not photocopy. It's not a picture. It's not a printing press. We're writing it down by hand. But even though there are quite a few variants in the New Testament, the, the vast majority of the variants are simply differences in spelling or word order. Some say around 75% of the variants just have to do with spelling or word order. For instance, instead of saying Jesus Christ, it would say Christ Jesus. Or instead of saying John in Greek with one in, it might say John in Greek with two ends, both acceptable spellings. Here's the question I ask you. Do those do anything to change the meaning at all? Does it affect anything to do with your faith? Does this affect anything to do with the reliability of the Bible? No, not at all. So the variants that are there are most of them, the vast majority of them are not significant at all. Most scholars have estimated that only 1%, 1% of the variants that exist have any bearing whatsoever on the meaning of any verse. This very, very small percentage of these variants matter at all. But even the most significant variants have no bearing on the overall teaching of Scripture. So even if you have one word that you're not sure what it is, does that change the message of the Bible as a whole? Absolutely not. Here's how one theologian scholar puts it. The spirit of inspiration did not limit himself to one statement about salvation by faith. The distinctions between law and grace. The mission of the church or the danger of a real lake of fire. Sacred scripture repeats its doctrines over and over again through historical narrative, law, poetry, prophecy, parables, and letters. It is because of, rather than in spite of these multiple prophets, multiple apostles, multiple translations, and multiple interpreters that we can say with great confidence that we have in our hands an absolutely reliable word of God. It is because the Bible was spread throughout the world in many thousands of copies that the scholars can assure us that only a small percentage of the original autographs is in question, none of which jeopardizes a major doctrine of Scripture. In other words, what are scholars who have studied this their whole life saying? Listen, there are some variants. Most of them, they don't really matter. The ones that do don't affect the meaning of the Bible. So you really shouldn't be concerned about, hey, what about, have we lost the Bible in some way? No, not at all. Um, let me give you an illustration to kind of drive this home. Okay, let's pick six books from the Bible. Three Old Testament, three New Testament. Holler them out. Let's do Old Testament over here. You guys go first. Isaiah. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Psalm. Okay. Peter. Which, which one? Which one? Which one? <laughs> First Peter, okay, First Peter, Galatians, and Ephesians. Man, those are good ones. I don't know. Okay, so let's say, God forbid, I don't recommend you doing this. Let's say, God forbid, you go home, you got your Bible out, you looked up those books, and you went, tore them all out, all six of them, okay? So now you're down to 60 books in the Bible. You have removed 10% of the Bible, okay? With me on this? 
If you read your Bible, would the teaching of it change? No, virtually none. Virtually none. Would it say the same thing about salvation? Yes. Would it say the same thing about who God is? Would it say the same thing about sin and its consequences and trusting Jesus and its rewards? Yes. In other words, even removing 10% of the Bible, your, your understanding of the Bible would change very, very little. In fact, if you just had the book of John or Ephesians or Romans, down to just one book of the Bible, and you read that from cover to cover and read it carefully, would you essentially get the overall message of the Bible? Yes. The idea is simply this. We're talking about just a handful of words in this entire thing that there's any question about. It doesn't fundamentally in one iota change the, the, the concept of what the Bible is all about. Here's what I'm simply saying. Have confidence in this book. Not just because God says so, and he does. Not just because it's rooted in the nature of God and his desire to preserve his word for his people, and it's about that. But ultimately, history supports that con conclusion as well. This is not just a blind leap of faith. This is like, look at the evidence and then say, oh, based on the evidence of history and antiquity and scholars and archaeology, we can have a huge degree of confidence that the word of God that we hold in our hands is the word of God. Does that make sense? This Bible is the Bible. You don't have to have any question about that. Next, number three, the consistency of the translations. Some may hear all this and say, okay, all right, Ryan, I'm with you. I, I've never considered some of those things before, but man, the evidence is pretty compelling. But there are so many translations. Have you ever said that or heard somebody say that? There's so many translations. How can we know which translation is the right one? This is a great question. It really is a good question. And what I would argue, and I'm not going to spend a load of time on this, but I would argue that all of the major English translations of the Bible, the ESV, the CSB, the New King James, the NIV, the NASB, etc., I would argue that every single one of those are reliable and should rightly be called the word of God in the English language. Every single one of these translations were done by scholars who desire to accurately communicate the truth of God's word. Not a single one of these Bibles was made by somebody with dark intentions, okay? Now there are some, there are some messed up versions out there, that's true. But the major versions in the English language are very trustworthy. Take, take, for instance, this is an ESV that I'm holding, and it's not the only translation. But listen to what the, the translators of the ESV says. Listen to this. The ESV publishing team includes more than 100 people. The 14-member translation oversight committee has benefited from the work of more than 50 biblical experts serving as translation review scholars and from the comments of more than 50 members of the advisory council, all of which have been carried out under the auspices of the Crossway Board of Directors. This 100-plus member team shares a common commitment to the truth of God's word and to the historic Christian orthodoxy and is international in scope, including leaders from many denominations. We know that no Bible translation is perfect or final, but we also know that God uses imperfect and inadequate things to honor his honor and praise. So to our triune God and to his people, we offer what we have done and with our prayers that it may prove useful with gratitude for much help given us and with the ongoing wonder that our God should ever to entrusted us this momentous task, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Does that sound like someone trying to fudge on God's word? No, they were careful. They had a whole bunch of people in it and they were trying to give an accurate, reliable rendering of the Bible. Let me give you one more kind of object lesson to show you why I think we should trust the Bible. Let's revise our little illustration just a moment ago. So there, Travis, come on up here. I'm gonna give Travis the, the NIV. Okay, Travis, stand right up here. Okay, all right, Cal, come on. Come on, buddy, come on. Okay, you can have this one here. This is the, the ESV. Come on, Anita. Come on, Anita. Anita's going to get the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. Okay, Joshua, come on. 
Come on, this Joshua right here. This one is, what is this one? This one is the New Living Translation. Okay, very good, very good. Come on, Brady. My nephew's here today, so Brady, come on. Here he comes, here he comes. Come on, Brady, with great speed. And this is the Christian Standard Bible. Okay, so we've got five different translations here. Let's suppose that we were to lock these five people away in a room somewhere, right? All by themselves. And for the next year said, hey, this is all you got. You just have this Bible. Study the Bible. Okay? So they all have a different translation. They don't have access to any other translation. I think everybody would be in the same place, except for maybe Calvin, because he can't, he can't read very well. I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's my son. So, yeah. So you lock them all away in the room. They study carefully. They, they highlight. They underline. They take some notes. And we say, at the end of this year, locked in a room with just this Bible, we want you to write a paper on what it means to be saved. Okay? We asked them all to do that. Let me ask you this question. Are their papers going to be basically the same? Yeah. There might be a few terminology differences. There might be some emphasis differences because they're different people. But will they basically have the same content in terms of what it means to be saved? Because they have a Bible in the English language. And even though the language is slightly different, is the meaning behind that essentially the same? Yes. So my point is simply this. You don't need the right translation. You just need a good translation that accurately and faithfully tries to record the word of God and you're gonna walk away with the very same idea. Does that make sense? Okay, very good. You can put your Bibles back right there. Very good. I'm not giving them away this time. So, um, it, It's, it's kind of like this. Uh, how many of you have, how many LeBron fans do we have here? Okay. Fewer than a few weeks ago. Is that Okay. So LeBron was traded from the Cleveland Cavaliers, or he signed. He went from the Cleveland Cavaliers to the Los Angeles Lakers, right? Um, in going to L.A., is LeBron in this new team, is he going to have to learn some new terminology? Sure. I mean, do they probably have like slightly different emphasis on defense? Or, you know, do they have a different rotation of players? Certainly. But is, is LeBron going to have like a steep learning curve? No, it's the same game. Just the same game, different team, slightly different terminology, same game. LeBron's going to pick it right up because there's not much difference there, right? It'd be a whole nother matter if LeBron, LeBron went from the Cleveland Cavaliers to the Atlanta Falcons. Right? I think he'd be a good tight end, but let's just, let's just speculate. Would he have to learn some things there? A whole lot. Why? Because it's a different game. game. A whole new ball game, as we would say, right? The differences in translations are really like from going to, from one team to another. It's not really changing sports. It's just from going from one team to another, same game, same league, same idea, maybe some slight differences in terminology, but the terminology, you can pick it up and the overall message of the scripture is the same. What am I saying about this? Man, if you have, there's no such thing as a perfect translation, but we are blessed in the English language to have many reliable translations and I would commend many of them to you. I would just say, you know what? I really don't care a whole lot which translation you read. I care more that you are reading a translation of God's word, okay? All right, number four, the intent of God. I think this is the most compelling reason for us to believe your Bible, that you should have confidence in your Bible is the intent of God. As I said at the outset, Nowhere in the scripture does it explicitly say, God say, I will preserve my word in this way or at this place. It doesn't say that. If you go looking for that passage of scripture, you're, you're twisting it a bit. But the Bible does say some things about God's heart on this matter of preservation of his word for his people. I just want you to hear these promises, hear what God says about his people and his love and his commitment for them, and see if this doesn't persuade you to think that God would make sure that his word gets into the hands of his people. Psalm 119 verse 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures, what's it say? Forever. 
Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand how long? Forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, as Jesus says, but my words will not pass away. It seems to me that because of the promises of Scripture and because of the way God preserved his word, the Lord wanted, wanted his word to have a bit of an indestructible quality to it. Like, like you, you couldn't get rid of it. It was like the weed in your yard that you, you couldn't fully ever extinguish. No matter what you try to do, it just keeps coming back in one sense. And I think based on those passages of scripture that it seems to me that God wanted his word to remain in the hands of his people. In 303 AD, Diocletian, the Roman emperor, attempted to snuff out Christianity. And the method he took to do it was by destroying the word of God. He issued an edict commanding anyone possessing or knowing where a Bible was should come forward. And those who refused to do so would be executed if it was found out at a later time. So essentially, Diocletian says, man, this thing is new. I'm going to nip it in the bud. I'm going to cut it off its head. I'm going to restore the, the worship of the Roman deities and, and crush this Christianity. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to destroy the Bible. So if you have a Bible, bring it forward now. Because if we found out later, you're dead. Or if you know of anybody who has a Bible, you better let us know. You better rat them out or you're going to be in trouble if we find that out. But Diocletian's plan failed utterly. When he died 25 years later, one of his successors by the name of Constantine actually officially commissioned and funded more copies of the very Bible that Diocletian tried to destroy. So he was the emperor and he said, we're going to destroy the Bible. Constantine becomes the emperor and says, hey, we're going to spread the Bible. Um, in one sense, God's word will keep on going. And, and the reason is this, because God wants it to keep on going. I don't think we will ever fully lose the word of God. Sure, in some cultures, in some languages, it could be hidden for a while. It calls for missionary effort to get the scripture into people's hands. But I don't think the word of God will ever be fully snuffed out. And my reason for thinking that is because I don't think God wants it to. I think God gave us the word because he wanted to get it into his people's hands. The word of God is an anvil over which many human hammers have been broken. You can run up against the word of God, but in the end, the word of God will win because it is, it is the very revelation of the creator and sustainer of the universe. And he gave his word because he wanted people to know what it says. So where does this leave us? <laughs> My hope is after this like ultra nerd fest, which it has been, forgive me, um, that you will walk away. Did somebody say amen? That's difficult. Yeah, that hurts. First amen the entire time. Nerd fest. Amen. That's right, pastor. Um, my hope that is in some small way, this has led you to a greater confidence in the Bible that you hold in your hands. But if you simply intellectually acknowledge that the Bible is trustworthy, oh yeah, man, the evidence of history says so, and man, it, it, it seems that there's a lot of reason and evidence that, that we should generally trust in the word of God. But if that's just something that in your head you say, I believe that the Bible is the word of God and that this is an accurate representation of what the Lord wants his people, I think I have fallen far short. My desire is in giving kind of this kind of academic type lecture is, is not simply so that you would know that the Bible is the word of God, but rather so that you would treasure the word of God. We should not just trust the Bible, we should treasure it. Perhaps a story illustrates this best. During the 16th century, the church in England was, a very, was at a very low spiritual ebb. The clergy was corrupt and people were ignorant of the most basic biblical principles. And why wouldn't they be? The church services at that time were in Latin. 
And only those educated could understand what was being said. No one had access to the Bible. And those that did have access to the Bible, many of them couldn't even read it. It was as if God's word had been completely removed from the common people. It was not a Bible in the vernacular that is the common man's language. It was non-understandable. At this time, God raised up a gifted scholar and preacher by the name of William Tyndale. As Tyndale observed what was going on, he began to tinker with the idea of translating the Bible into the common man's language. Well, this was not a popular idea at the time because the church at that time believed that like only the priest really should have access to the Bible. Only the priest could really understand what was being said in the scripture. So they kind of needed to keep it out of the common man's hands. Tyndale became a preacher and that idea was in the back of his hand. And one day while he was sitting at dinner with a person that he was tutoring, a, a, a scholar from the church came to dinner and they began talking about the Bible and about the teaching of scriptures. And this scholar, this visiting scholar said to Tyndale, we were better to be without God's laws than without the popes. To this Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God should spare me ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scripture than he does. This was not a popular sentiment. In fact, that very concept made Tyndale an outlaw. Because he said, okay, now I've got to do what I've kind of thought about. I've got to get the word of God into the English language so that people in my country can read the Bible. There's no way they're going to know Jesus. There's no way they're going to grow in their faith if they don't have access to the Bible. So Tyndale began translating. And for this, he was, he was exiled from his country. King of England said, if you do that, you are a fugitive. If we catch you, we will kill you. This is heresy. And everybody was trying to capture Tyndale. So Tyndale took his manuscripts and he ran. And for 12 years, 12 years as an exile from his country, virtually all he did was translate the Bible into the English language. That's all he did for 12 years, run. He got all the way to Deuteronomy at one time and was in a shipwreck and had to start over. Ugh. 12 years, he's running, he's running, he's running, he's running. Many times he wrote something like this back to the king. Here's what Tyndale's words himself said. I assure you, if it would stand with the king's most gracious pleasure to grant only a bare text of scripture, that is without any explanatory notes. He didn't want to write anything else, just the Bible. To be put forth among his people, be it of a translation of what person soever shall please his majesty, I shall immediately make faithful promise never to write more, not abide two days in these parts after the same, but immediately to repair unto his realm and there most humbly to submit myself to the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer what pain or torture, yea, what dread death his grace will so that this translation be obtained until that time I will abide in the asperity of all chances whatsoever shall come and endure my life in many pains as it shall be able to bear and to suffer in other words Tyndale was saying to the king if you will give a bible that people can read you can kill me but king until you do so I will remain on the run and I will keep translating the scripture so that plowboy can know the message of Jesus. It is worth my death. The word of God in your native tongue is a priceless treasure. There are, there are thousands of people today that do not have a scrap of scripture in the language they speak. I have a stack of five Bibles, all really good different translations. And there's probably five more. We have, a, we have a boon of blessing by having the word of God in a language that we speak. It is a priceless treasure. And why is it so? 
Well, I'll let the Apostle Paul answer that question. We read this text earlier. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Speaking to his ministry protege, Timothy, here's what Paul says. Timothy, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Bible. Timothy, you've heard them from the time you were a kid. Now notice what he says about the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, the Bible is precious because they point us to Jesus, and Jesus is precious. We should praise God for the scriptures because they are the revelation of Jesus Christ. And no Christ, there is no life. And no scriptures, there is no Christ. We should value this precious book that God has put in our hand. It's not just something that we should intellectually say, well, that's trustworthy. Like you trust an encyclopedia or a dictionary. We should treasure it. Because it is the word, the revelation. That's what word essentially means. The revelation. The display of, the demonstration of Christ. The word of God himself. We do not worship the Bible. We shouldn't be bible alators. But we should cherish the Bible because it gets us to the one that we worship. In some senses, <laughs> can I have your glasses, Travis? In some senses, this is what the Bible is. We put them on and we can see Jesus. They're glasses. We're not, it's not the glasses that we really need, it's the vision, right? But the glasses allow us to see what is really there. And God gave us his word so that we could see Jesus, brothers and sisters. So that we could see the one that could rescue us from our sins. So here's what I would urge you. Put your glasses on. Wear them early. Wear them often. Thank God for them. Understand what they do because they point you beyond themselves. We don't have a church service saying, let us lift up the Bible. But this Bible points us to one who is worthy of our lifting up. Let's worship the Savior who is revealed to us in the word. So where does this leave us? I, 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 wanna, I wanna just give you two challenges here, okay? If we really treasure the word of God, I want to give you two challenges. One, I want to say read broadly. And do you have a plan for reading the Bible? I mean, honestly, I don't know how you make it if you don't read the Bible. Like, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I need to read the Bible, like, all the time, or else I lose my way. I don't know if you find that with you. But do you have a plan for reading the Bible? Do you have a time? Do you have a place do you have a method for reading the Bible? Because if you treasure it, you will carve that out in your day. It'll become more important to you than looking at Facebook or checking your email or watching your favorite show on Netflix. If you just say, man, the Bible is a priceless treasure, it will show up in your calendar, won't it? Do you have a time and a place and a plan for getting in the word of God? Just read. There are so many great plans out there. I love the Bible app. It is amazing in my mind. It gives you all kinds of different plans for reading the Bible. So start by reading through the Bible in a year or read through the New Testament in the year. You know how long it will take you to read through the Bible in the year if you do it every day? You want to know? 15 minutes a day. 15 minutes a day. And you can read through the entire Bible in one year. I'd love for many of us to just take up that challenge and say, you know what? This year, never done it before. I'm going to read the entire Bible cover to cover. And I'm going to do it a little chunk at a time. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Just read broadly. Just read broadly. The second thing I want to challenge you with is meditate deeply. 
The Bible says in Psalm 1, blessed is the man that makes his delight the law of the Lord. And in that law, he meditates day and night. That man is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth fruit in its season. Man, if you don't have the Bible up here and in here, you won't be that blessed person. You won't flourish when the desert winds come, when the drought comes, when the pestilence comes. But if you are that man who makes the word of God your delight and you think about it day and night, it's just on your heart, then you'll put your roots down deep. And even when the stream bed seems to be dry, your roots will go down even deeper. And you will flourish. <laughs> I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. I don't want to sin against my creator. And the way I fight temptation in my life and the way every believer is intended to walk out their Christian faith is by deeply drinking from the word of God. Sometimes we go to fight the temptation of sin, right? And we go back to our arsenal. We bust open that big old case and look for a sword of the spirit to slay the dragons of temptation. And all we got is Genesis 1-1 and John 3-16. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Ooh, that knocks out anxiety really good, huh? That just really slays lust when it comes. Man, we want to stock those arsenals with promises from the word of God. And the way that we do that is we meditate deeply. So read broadly, read through the Bible. And then figure out some way where you're going to meditate, rehearse God's word. Here's one thing that's been helpful for me about meditation. Meditation is like worrying about the Bible. Say, so what do you mean by that? Well, when we worry, what do we do? We rehearse a problem over and over and over and over again in our mind. We just keep going over it from every angle. We worry, 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 worry. Take the Bible, take a verse of scripture, and worry about it. So look at it from every angle. Try to get underneath it. Think about it. Keep thinking about it. When you lay down on your pillow at night, just keep thinking about it. Man, what's this really saying? What's this all about? What do I need to do? How is it changing me? How is it challenging me? What does it say to my heart? Just really put the Bible in your mind, in your heart, and meditate on it deeply. Can we do that? Can we take up that challenge? Can we not just say, man, this is a trustworthy book. But can we begin to say, this is a priceless book. It is priceless. The encyclopedia might be trustworthy, but the Bible alone is priceless. And let that be demonstrated in our words and actions. I'm gonna ask the prayer team to come as I close in prayer. And if God's kind of doing something in your heart and you're like, man, I just want to treasure God's word. And you like to pray with somebody about that. Man, they will be standing by. They just love to spend some time and pray with you and ask God to really give you a deep love and appreciation for his word. Let's take advantage of that and say, man, I haven't been reading the Bible like I should. I haven't been meditating at all. I don't even know where to begin, but I want my heart to change. I want to love God's word and that be evident in my life. Will you just spend some time having some brothers and sisters pray with you?